Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Alright everyone, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Once again, my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer living in Pennsylvania. If you are new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our perspective as ministers, as theologians, as folks who just love movies. Then we gather for a conversation with our guest this week. Our guest Chaz Howard has asked us to go watch Black Panther, although he didn't have to ask very hard. So we've gone and done it. And our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask him what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas from what you might do with Black Panther for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be March 11th, the fourth Sunday in Lent. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far, we want to introduce our special guest. Chas Howard is coming back to the show. He is the university chaplain at University of Pennsylvania and the author of a wide-ranging number of materials, including Pond River Ocean Rain, which is a contemplative meditation on how we find God. He is also our super special superhero movie correspondent, So last time Chaz was on the show, we talked to him about Doctor Strange, and it was only right to have him back to talk Black Panther. Chaz, thanks for coming back. It is good to be with you, sons of colonizers. Thank you for having me back. (laughs) That's right. I think it's only fitting, right? We can repay you. So am I really the one to introduce this movie now? I mean, do I, do yes. I even have to introduce the movie? We, we are recording this two weeks after the release of Black Panther, and last weekend it blew past $700 million internationally, so I, I feel like Black Panther probably doesn't need my introductory paragraph. But just in case, uh, Black Panther is the 18th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the hands of 31-year-old Ryan Coogler after directing Fruitvale Station and then Creed. It picks up just after the events of Captain America Civil War from May of 2016, which debuted the character of King T'Challa, Black Panther, ruler of the fictional African kingdom of Wakanda. Wakanda secretly guards a stash of advanced minerals called vibranium, and vibranium has made Wakanda into a technological utopia, which is also hidden from the outside world and therefore has been hidden from white colonialism. We only get hints of all of that in Civil War, but here in Black Panther, we get the full story, including T'Challa's feud with a Wakandan expat raised in Oakland in the mold of the American Black Panther Party, a guy named Eric Killmonger. Killmonger wants to leverage Wakandan resources to fuel a global black uprising. T'Challa wants to protect Wakanda at all costs. And neither one of them are anywhere near as interesting as the women who really make this movie go. Mm. There's so much more to say here, Chaz, but you've got to take it. Start us off. How can Black Panther help us? How can it perhaps particularly help the church? How can this movie help stoke our theological imagination? Again, it's really good to be with you all. I'm so glad you're uh, choosing to look at this movie. I loved it, and I think most everyone who's seen it has loved it. It's a great question, though, of 
how can this help stoke our theological imaginations? And the first thing that comes to mind, and I think it's appropriate, is to think about uh, the definition of sort of black theology. And, and there's a lot of ways to define it, but one way I hold it is reconstructing the center. Black theology or liberation theology more broadly is reconstructing the theological center. And if that means, in a lot of ways, the black experience or the experience of people of color is the experience at the margins or their experiences are marginalized. And therefore, reconstructing the center is bringing these experiences to the middle so that everyone can see them and they can be celebrated and lifted up. In a lot of ways, that's what Black Panther does. It, it, it changes the, 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 the stars that you see on the screen. So most of the leading actors and actresses in these superhero movies are white faces. Most of the directors and writers and producers are white faces. With Black Panther, you have a black director, black writer, uh, many people on the production staff were of African descent. Uh, the stars, the, the co-stars, so many of the characters, so many of the extras are, are people of African descent, or as people say, African ascent. And, and, and that's reconstructed this kind of visual center. It's a challenge to do the same thing theologically, though, where so many of the songs we choose for worship, so, many, so much of the subject matter that we choose uh, to preach about, to have small groups about, revolves around here in the States, uh, the white American experience or things that are pertaining to the things that, that white folks are thinking about. And that's okay. But when the black experience is marginalized, when we only talk about it during Black History Month or Dr. King Day, something's deeply wrong. And so what if we, what if we rearrange and rethink what we are going to do in worship and bring uh, black Latino, Latina, Latinx uh, experiences, the experiences of people of South Asian, East Asian descent, uh, the experience of women, the experience of queer people to the center of worship, to the center of theological contemplation a little bit more. And when you do, amazing thing happen, just like what happened with Black Panther in, uh, in the States right now. So I want to come back to how we, how we think about this in terms of the church setting and the ecclesiastical setting. But I do just want to sit with this movie for a few minutes first. And, and uh, to Chaz and then also to Adam, I want to think about some of the some of the themes that this movie pulls out and some of the ways in which its its characters lift up those themes. And I think the big one is for us to talk about Killmonger and to talk about the 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 villain and the central conflict in this movie between the the villain who is advocating for a kind of global uprising and T'Challa, the king who was advocating for a certain kind of status quo relationship in Wakanda. The Critics of this film and, and lovers of this film have kind of widely praised Michael B. Jordan's performance as Killmonger and have noted kind of how seductive his his ideology is, even though he does kind of fade at the end and and is, you know, he doesn't win the day as as the villain. But I, I think we gotta talk about this for a while. How did you find yourself, both of you, in in that conflict? Um, and how did you feel in terms of Ryan Coogler's artistic vision, does does Coogler mourn for Killmonger, and what is what is gained, and what is lost, and what is lifted up? I think a part of what makes it so beautiful is that it presents black complexity. Right. I think historically, yeah. when 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 African Americans were portrayed in cinema, you have these very simple one dimensional characters that very often are stereotypes, whether it's this kind of mammy character or kind of a a buck or sort of Jezebel sort of character where the women are either hypersexual vixens or these sort of, you know, mean, big, hyperphysical black men 
or the kind of magical Negro motif that so many black characters are. But here, you, you know, the two main characters, T'Challa and Eric Killmonger, are really complex. And, and it, even in description, it's hard to oversimplify them as kind of a good guy and a bad guy. Right. Or Wakanda being all good and, you know, the kind of war dog dad of Eric Killmonger's being all bad. It's so complex. And I think that's what, what grabs a lot of people. So when you think about Killmonger, for example, you can't even just describe him as a villain. There's trauma poured in there. There's real vision for broad liberation poured in there. Um, there there's charm. There's sort of action. Uh, not to mention sort of a, a, a character, an actor who draws you in. And same thing with sort of T'Challa. He's a beautiful, noble, messianic figure in the movie. But at the same time, he's, he's convicted of like not doing enough. Right. Not just Wakanda, but, but this cat who's like, I'm just trying to look out for my people here. I'm not worried too much about everything else, especially his father's mistake. You know, this, this whole thing's a big spoiler alert. But I think yeah, it's yeah, this sure. sort of father's mistake. Um, and, and I think we walk away feeling like benevolently unsettled. I think that's, that's one of the most beautiful things. I love when pastors do this or when theologians do this, that you, know, you land ultimately that there's a good news uh, and that's great, but it's complicated along the way. And so much of the human experience is complicated along the way. And I love that. I'll say one last thing here. We had a conversation here on campus um, about the movie with, with a number of black students, uh, black American students, students from the continent of Africa as well. So many of my kids identified with Eric Killmonger more than they identified with T'Challa. And I got it. Kids who lost their dads growing up, there's a stereotype in there, but it was real for a lot of people in the room. Folks who grew up without dads. A lot of our African students are sort of second generation students who have wrestled with this challenge of assimilating and taking on African-American journey while trying to hold on to their African heritage. And the desire to kind of uplift in a, in a beautiful pan-Africanist view, uplift all black people and all oppressed people. So my kids, they, they connected more with Killmonger, not, not the kind of violent sort of bloodthirsty aspect of it, maybe. But with the kind of traumatized uh, difficulty of being black in America right now, and a desire for, for good, yet also the, the pain of the, the sins of the father, in this case, the sins of the uncle. Chess, I think as, as I hear you talk, <clears throat> I mean, your, your first comments about how do we, you know, reconstruct the center and watching this movie portray people in... Um, in complicated situations, having complicated motives yeah. built from complicated histories, right? And in many ways, that's reflective of life. Mm. And to have a history, like you noted, of cinema that doesn't ultimately reflect that, or if it has, it reflects it in such like small, um, small, small movies that perhaps don't have such like cultural impact. Because I think that there is a long and important history of black cinema that does try and do this. It's just never caught traction in Hollywood or sure. um, in a wider white culture. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if there is a cinematic property right now, is probably the most valuable. Mm. And to watch this movie make this much money with these particular faces, and not just these faces, but these stories, mm. right? Um, is uh, is pretty remarkable, and and I I think the poll is 
Killmonger. I, I really think he's the heart of the movie. Um, yeah. Because T'Challa is going to survive. You know, it's it's still a superhero movie, right? There has there has to be a superhero. Yeah. But where this movie does do something different than the previous superhero movies is that it creates a villain who we don't really know if, is, if this person's a villain. Right. At the end of the movie, they've of course the villain and the hero are going to fight. But I I was I was convinced that they were going to become friends or cousins. Mm. Right? Like I I didn't know what was going to happen like that at that moment. And yeah. then and that that is a powerful cinematic experience when you can't predict <laughs> because you don't have the stereotypes any longer to predict. Yeah. Like you, you're not resting upon all of these previous iterations that give you the predictive power about how the black character is supposed to act in this movie. Now right. you don't know. And that is when they become human. That's when they become fully enfleshed as, and their dignity is given back to them because now they can be unpredictable. That's right. Um, and so when Killmonger says his last line, it's killer. Oh. It's just, it hits you it, like in the solar plexus. Yeah. And it gives you this indication that this person is, um, is, is, in a different story, a tragic hero, mm. right? Like he never had ancestors. Yeah. And so he says, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from ships because they knew death was better than bondage. Like that he, he, he doesn't have the sand to go over him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't have the history that's been handed to him. And I think that this is, I, some of, Kugler's real genius in this movie is to talk about Wakanda while also talking about the vestiges of chattel slavery in this country. Mm-hmm. And one of the most insidious terrors of, of slavery in this country is that it aimed to erase the history of a people. It, it did. Yeah, it, and it's, it severed the contact with the ancestors, with their culture. And then we talk about African slaves, but they weren't Africans, just African slaves. They were coming from different tribes and different places on the continent. And they had different cosmologies and different stories that they told about themselves. That's and right. then mixing them and separating families and separating people from tribes. These were all intentional oper- or intentional strategies to try and destroy um, memory. That's right. Um, and I was, I, I was reminded of Cohn and his book on spirituals and the, um, and the blues has this killer line. He says, when white people enslaved Africans, their intention was to dehistoricize black existence, to foreclose a possibility of a future defined by African heritage. And so I look at something like this movie and it creates a fictional heritage, Mm. right? Wakanda doesn't exist, but in some ways, it is doing the cultural work of re-memorizing, re recreating some memory that can be shared by a group of people who maybe don't know what tribe their ancestors came from or where on the continent they might have shown up. But at this point, I felt like they could all walk out of the theater confident that Wakanda was in some part theirs. Yes. The Africa, even more broadly, is some part theirs. 
Yeah. You know, the language uh, portrayed in the, in the film is a sort of, you know, most of it is a South African dialect. It's real language um, that many of the actors learned and, and sort of reflected there, uh, which, which is real. And, you know, in the museum in the beginning, they're looking at Ghanaian and Benin or artifacts from Benin. Those are real artifacts, real countries they're referencing there. Um, and Africa's real. Like, like you said, I mean, Wakanda is certainly fictional, but there's a lot of it that's, that's real. And one, of the, one of the interesting things, to kind of one other word on, on Eric's character, you know, Matt, at the beginning, you, you said something that I think is one of the ironies of the film, that in a lot of ways, Eric Killmonger is meant to present the traditional view of the Black Panther Party in America. And, and the Panthers are really complex, really complex. Um, but it's ironic that in a lot of ways, Killmonger is more of the Black Panther than T'Challa is. Even though T'Challa kind of gets the heart-shaped you know, herb and kind of has the mask and has the, the Black Panther DT from Africa there, but Killmonger really more legit is the Black Panther. And then T'Challa moves toward that toward the end of the movie with the leadership of his sort of sister and future wife and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's an important point. Um, and it's another sort of subtle gift that the movie brings is reminding people of the heritage of the Black Panthers. They don't go so deep into this at all. They hardly reference it. But the fact that Stanley and Jack Kirby kind of chose the name Black Panther for the superhero is an interesting thing. Um, they could have called him like Africa Man. They could have called him Big Black Cat. <laughs> they could have any, any kind of name. But this African character is given the name of a, a radical leftist progressive, um, scary to a lot of white people, black party uh, in, the, in the States, which, which, which is deep. And, and what I think was a nod of, I think, affirmation and, um, and kind of a push of, of, of love and I see you that, uh, that Stan and, and them had back in, back in the day when they created this character. I guess here's what I want to push, because I, I think there's a difference between a character's ideology and vision and, and, and the methodology that they use to try to achieve it. And I think that's part of what I get tripped up with, with Killmonger and T'Challa, is that there's no question to me that this movie is, is incredibly sympathetic, and rightly so, to Killmonger's vision. Uh, but I think his... But, but I think his methodology is where it gets tripped up. And the, particularly the way I would lift that up is in this film's relationship to women and the way in which the women characters get, um, get, get screen time or, or get denied screen time. So that Wakanda comes off as being a place where not only has colonialism not touched, but in some ways the, the relationships of, of masculine and feminine are drastically different. And we have women who are incredibly powerful, incredibly charismatic, and they seem to be incredibly valued. Uh, and T'Challa's sister, Shuri, for my money, is like the beating heart of the movie and is the genius that is putting all of this together. There's a, you know, a, woman, at, a woman at the head of their security guards and at the head of their um, kind of surveillance apparatus. On the other hand, Killmonger has a, what seems to be a girlfriend who follows him around for half the movie before he unceremoniously shoots her in the head. I mean, mm. and, and so there, there seems to be um, uh, a, a kind of, a kind of proto, a kind of hypermasculine, 
urgency and and violence to his methodology that makes it unfortunately i think easier to root against his vision for this larger uprising although no to no, no question that that vision is still incredibly seductive and leaves the film and i think leaves its audience very much stirred and and importantly so i mean i think you know i took my two daughters to see it and you know they were they, you know they love action movies they kind of i've turned them into little comic book nerds and stuff like that too but they they really fell in love with General Okoye um, and you know, all the women in the whole movie from T'Challa's mom to his sister and everyone. And and like you said, probably probably the fiercest fighter in the movie is Okoye. Yeah. You know, we leave the kind of herb aside. She, I don't think there's anybody she can't beat. Right. And and certainly the smartest person in the movie is, is Nakia, you know, just just a brilliant STEM kind of model in, in a lot of ways. Who's who's it's hard to tell her age, but it seems like a teenager, which is dope and really, really fresh, man. Hey, one, one last thing on, on Eric, though. I mean, I think the same thing happened with the Panthers, that the the threat or the use of self-defense or violence uh, made them into monsters. I think it was the same thing here, and they did this in the movie, that kind of, you know, Killmonger's journey, he's described as this monster. If he if if he wins and the story is told differently, and if he kind of when he gets once he gets thrown, if he kind of chills a little bit and isn't kind of as brutal on the throne, he's kind of seen as this kind of rebellious hero mm-hmm. who did what he had to do to get there, um, which which is which is complex. And I think you know looking at violence from a Christian perspective is complex, and I think we can talk a little more about that. Um, but a lot of people don't see him as a monster, in the same way they didn't see Winter Soldier as a monster, a guy who who has put the as long a kill list as Killmonger. Sure. Um, or in a lot of ways, the rest of the Avengers, you know, they, they kind of, a whole city kind of crumbles on them two movies ago, but they're not seen as monsters because of this effort for the greater good. And, and I think it's important to think about, you know, Killmonger is, one way to think about his journey is it could have been for the com- for the greater good. I think it's complicated. I think it's dangerous to kind of over-hero size him. Yeah. Um, but it, violence and black people is is amplified than it is with white people sometimes um and i think you know marvel did that last little note here the, one of the critiques of the film has been that the one african-american character um, who sort of survives past the first 20 minutes killmonger is ultimately portrayed in not a great way and that you have a broad range of complicated african characters who are great and messed up and smart and strong and dumb and betraying and all that kind of stuff but the one African-American is, as you said, a, a, a very violent, traumatized, dadless kind of orphan who doesn't totally know where he's from and has got these issues and, and is rough. And there are some people who didn't like the way that black Americans were portrayed in the film. By, by saying that, you're kind of dividing the African diaspora into different parts rather than just looking at a beautiful movie about the African diaspora. And there's a lot of characters and counting him as a part of that. But there is a there is a little bit of justified critique in that of the one black guy from America from Oakland whatever is a lot and kills at will and is and is scarred and has been ironically ultimately colonized by kind of violent Western uh, military complex. Chet, I, I hear that critique and there's part of me that that gets it. I also think that this movie is wrestling with. The, the consequence of Wakanda's 
insularity mm-hmm. and, and their, their lack of action and their inability to lift as they climb. Yeah. And how that has, um, how that has created or at least contributed to the creation of a militarized world, right? That, that would create someone like a Killmonger. That, um, that you get the sense that Killmonger um, doesn't have any options. And if he knew that Wakanda existed in a, in a way, or, or if it had made itself known to him, yeah. it could have been different, right? And that's, the, that's one of the central tensions of the movie, which is, um, what's the price of hiding here? Like, wh- what are you complicit in by, by not acting? And I, I think about this a lot as sort of when in church we come to a, a moment of confession, it's important not just to confess the things that we've done, but the things we've left undone. Mm. And, and I think this movie is trying to wrestle with a place like Wakanda, figuring out what it's left undone. And one of the things that left undone, quite, you know, figuratively left undone, was the the severing of this small child in Oakland. You know, that kind of scene with him and the ancestors, uh, where he's talking to his father, it, it's one of the great sort of subtle scenes. I think it's lost, but them taking ownership over what happened. You know, we, we have to go, this guy is trying to take the throne of America, but it's a monster, a monster of our own making which is powerful. I think it, it, it doesn't take total responsibility for the experience of, of, of Africans here in the States and the, the beatdown and trauma that this nation has inflicted on an entire people group for several generations. But, but he's right that we, we should have brought little Eric back with us. Um, that fateful day when you killed your brother, we really should have brought him back with us and raised him in, in Wakanda, but we failed. Chaz, I want to circle back to what you were saying at the the opening uh, about kind of bringing the marginalized to the center and how that looks for our worship and our church communities. And I just wondered if you might say a little bit about how that impacts you as you think about your worship community at UPenn and your kind of pastoral life. What do you do to make sure that the stories in the center are the stories that need to be in the center? It's an important question. And I appreciate you asking it. I mean, I think two things come to mind. My wife, girls, and I, because of where we live, uh, have for the last several years worshipped at two predominantly white churches, where most of the, in one, the first case, hymns chosen were written by white men, beautiful hymns, um, and in the second case, most of the praise and worship songs are. Kind of the kind of stuff you hear on K Love, um, praise and worship songs again, which I love and, and are in my rotation. Um, but but very very rarely do you hear um, a, a black gospel song um, or a song from the what's traditionally sort of called the kind of black tradition. I can get over that, and I sort of can find it in different spaces. What hurts the most, though, I remember very clearly on uh, that first Sunday after the news of Trayvon Martin's death broke. And this kind of wide call goes out for this million hoodie Sunday. And all throughout like my social media feeds, everybody's talking about the, the hoodies they're going to wear to church. And there are whole congregations of people wearing hoodies and pastors wearing a hoodie. And they're going to preach about Trayvon and gun violence. 
and profiling of young black men and how it's stop injustice and injustice and all that. And I get to the congregation I'm at and I'm the only one wearing a hoodie. And nothing is mentioned in the sermon or the prayers of the people or the coffee hour afterwards about Trayvon. And the same thing happens about Troy Davis, about you know Eric, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, like just never mentioned. And, and that is what stings, I think, partly the most, let alone worship style and like, are we going to celebrate Black History Month? Are we going to do MLK? Are we going to, you know, the, the Black saints on the church calendar, are we going to affirm them as opposed to the Gambano White one? And I think it's, you know, the folks in leadership, they don't mean any harm. And I don't think it's meant to be a, a consciously mean-spirited thing. But it's a way that people are conditioned, that that is the marginal experience, the experience of only, you know, all 10 of y'all in this congregation. So it's not as important, whether it's historically or what happened in the news this week. And I think that there is a consciousness and awareness that current pastors or professors or teachers or writers can have to care about the experience of the people who are only 10, 11, 12 percent of the country and of our congregation. Um, because when you do it, it feels like love and, and you can reconstruct. So you know, the last little word about reconstructing the center, it's not a replacement. It's not bumping out the white experience or, or the male experience or the street experience. It's grafting in the experiences of those marginalized people so that they're in the center too, so that they're here also. Which is, a t- I mean, which is uh, an important point that I think this movie is also trying to make, which is Killmonger's ideology is a, a total reversal, right? Mm-hmm. Those in the center get put in the margins because that's where they deserve. Because they, they have not, they have not proven themselves fit to rule from the center. Um, and considering that he now has the power to reverse those polls, um, he, he's going to. And yet the, the ideology that's coming from Nakia, for instance, um, is one that is trying to be more, uh, that's more complicated and is trying to be more thoughtful about how it is that you, um, you live in a, a more diverse ecosystem where these multiple and plural experiences can find some measure of harmony. Mm. Well said. Hey, can, can I ask you two a question? Yeah. yeah. What was it like to watch this as a white man? I, I went on. <clears throat> I went on opening day uh, to the draft house here in my neighborhood, like a four o'clock show. I I bought the the last ticket for it like five days earlier, so it would have all been massively sold out. It was really interesting here on the the east side of Austin. I mean, I live in a in, in a context that is certainly well worn with gentrification, and Austin is one of the cities in the country that has a, a that is a shrinking minority population because it's the whole city is gentrified so effectively. And then to go to the theater. Uh, in a predominantly white neighborhood and see people of color just having swarmed it I mean, just overwhelmed the theater uh, was really powerful. Uh, I mean, I was not the only white person in that theater, but I was pretty close. And it is really hard to be the only white person in a room in public space in Austin. Mm. And so that, <clears throat> that, that was really powerful, uh, just the, the physical sense of being there. Um, what about you, Adam? You know, I'm sitting, I was sitting in the theater, and it, it, it in many ways reiterated what I love about movies, 
which is this this ability to tell stories um and uh and to to share stories right so this is this is not reflective of my experience in the world by and large the 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 themes that Kugler and the cast are are working with here are things that I know secondhand via relationships with with friends and loved ones, via my own study of this world, via the particular ideological and um, theological convictions that I hold. Um, and yet I was also really mesmerized by this very human moment of like, getting to hear someone tell a story and tell it well. And, um, and so I was just really happy that this thing existed, that this movie existed, that someone was telling this story because I ultimately think that like part of the solution to our, our world is, is not to erase all of the old stories, but to just tell more stories. And in doing so you do the type of, reconciliation and resurrection of those old stories like, like the old movies where all of those terrible depictions of, of African-Americans um, are, are, are still there, but now there's something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's exciting to me. That's like, it doesn't erase the past, but it is having some role in trying to reconcile the past. And I think Strangely enough, that's also a major theme of this movie. And so I felt I felt just grateful that it existed. Mm. Because I I, I just it, it reiterated that I really believe in the power of storytelling to change the world and to make us better people and to make us like ever conforming to what I see as like the beloved in Christ. Beautiful. Gentlemen, I suspect we should move on, but before I do, let me say we are grateful for our partnership with The Christian Century, and I want to guide your attention to the great work that they are doing. Brittany Cooper has a really interesting article up about Michelle Obama and her ponytail at the most recent presidential inauguration. This is a really well-written and provocative, and I thought, considering our subject today, most appropriate. Check it out, titled, How Michelle Obama Subverted Respectability Politics with a Ponytail. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Chaz, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're looking at the lectionary passages for year B, Lent 4, which is Moses lifting up the servant in the wilderness from Exodus. John's reference to this moment in the third chapter of his gospel We've also got a passage from Ephesians 2. Chaz, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting given the themes of Black Panther? Yeah, you know, I, when I was thinking about it, it's fascinating. When you ask that question, I sort of engage those passages in a different way, particularly this notion of the serpent, which in, in Jewish and in Christian traditions from these scriptures is ultimately a reviled kind of creature from the story in the garden is, you know, the, the perpetual bad guy is the snake who misleads and leads to, you know, the great eating of the fruit and exile from the garden and all that sort of stuff like that. And yet in these passages has kind of a salvific quality where, you know, it's, it's held up 
and look at the snake and it'll protect you or you know, the son of man will be lifted up like the serpent, like the snake. In a lot of ways, I think about kind of black Americans or black people broad, more broadly to stay in the context of Black Panther, who in a lot of ways are hated, who are marginalized, seen as others, seen as monsters, seen as threats. And yet at the same time, so much good has come and can come from uh, the broad black journey uh, globally. And I think one could preach about that, of good from that which we fear, or the importance of looking at that which we fear. Same is true with Jesus. You know, I think you know, the, it's easy to look at the happy Jesus who's feeding 4,000 and feeding the 5,000 and you know, forget about the fact that Jesus was hated or in a lot of parts of the world, Christians are hated. And I think it's a good reminder that sometimes the things that the world perceives as ugly, as scary, as bad, God often brings salvation through that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, considering John later then says like, and look, the Son of Man will be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that um, that seeing is such an important part of this passage, right? Like, that salvation comes from noticing, from keeping your eyes open by being, and and I, I always get the sense in this passage that the serpent is 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 lifted high, so that not just so that if you get bit by a snake you might see it, but so that you never don't notice it, right? That it it's always sort of there as a reminder. Like the sun shines off of it and it like glints and at your feet and you and you were reminded, oh, yeah, 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 God is still here. God is still working this important stuff, even through this thing that I that I'm scared of. Yep. And, and even if that that thing that you're scared of is not just the serpent, but what the serpent brings, you think it's going to bring you death. You think that it's going to destroy you. Um, and God is saying, no, 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 it won't destroy you. I'll make sure it won't. It's interesting though, because that serpent story from with Moses has kind of a has kind of an odd sequel in in Second Kings, where one of Hezekiah's reforms is to destroy the statue of that snake. <laughs> awesome. You call it's called the Nehushtan, and because the, and the problem is that in between the time of Moses and the time of Hezekiah, the 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 statue that's supposed to be a sign of God's salvation ends up being kind of worshipped on its own. It gets idolized. Uh, and it, it and it gets it gets uh, it becomes part of the problem, right? It becomes part of the problem of Israel's idolatry, and mm. and, and I think um, I think there's really interesting work to be done here on kind of the way that the the things that we set up as um, vehicles for our salvation are inevitably corruptible because we're the ones who set them up. <laughs> uh, and I, I think there's some hints of this in the Ephesians passage. There's this weird thing in there about the you've been serving the ruler of the power of the air. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Ephesians is all about how holy and amazing um, like high places are. Like Jesus is always going up and it's always about lording over everything. But in this one moment, and then there's a moment later in Ephesians when he talks about the the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So like the, the places that you go for salvation are also corruptible. 
which is like a super relevant church thing, right? I mean, all you would have to do is talk about like pastors and sexual abuse and the ways in which the church as a kind of vehicle of salvation, quote, big heavy air quotes there, um, is like super infinitely corruptible. And the way in which we we actually poison the 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 means that people try to use to access God and to access the divine. Um, but I think it's there's some relevance in Black Panther too, because you know, he, he because of the way in which his his father's sin kind of poisons the ancestral plane for him. It poisons his own his own yeah. sense of being able to commune with with the divine, his own sense of whatever, like again, big heavy air quotes, whatever sanctification kind of looks like in that context, it gets not 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 irrevocably broken, but certainly kind of interfered with. Um, and I, I so I think there's some ways you could play that. Um, but I mostly just wanted to note that the snake story has a sequel and it doesn't go well. You know, it, it, kind of the theme we talked about earlier that you you can leave much of this unsettled, um, even with the backdrop of of the good news. Right. If you pre- if you preach all that, it's it's such a, a compelling, beautiful, painful, and unsettling conversation of of us. So. Right. Any other passages or places in those passages that jumped out to you all? So I was thinking about the the relationship of Moses, of the Moses story and the John passage, because I think it's really interesting. I I always take note when the uh, when the New Testament writers start exegeting Old Testament passages, just because they they have such an idiosyncratic way of doing it. And there's often times where I'm like, what? I have no, how did you come to this particular conclusion? And it, in this particular relationship where John says, talks about the the serpent being lifted up in this Exodus passage and the son of man is also going to be lifted up. And um, it always feels to me that, that John's exegesis of this is a little glossy. It's like a, a little convenient. It's like, he was just like searching through his Bible and was like, Oh, I need something that was lifted up. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, Oh, right, right. Yeah. There was this. I think I remember that. Like, we'll just go with that. Um, And so I, but it's, it's, it's not unlike uh, some of my own preaching exegesis that I think sometimes it's just me searching for something to confirm the notion that I'm already about to talk about. And, um, and it, it led me to think about the two scenes in Black Panther where T'Challa visits the ancestral plane and meets his father. And I think the 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 set design and the um, the art the artistic design and Kugler's vision of of those two scenes is really fascinating, because in the first one he's he's becoming king. He meets his father, and it's it's like dusky and purple. It looks like the Black Panther, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his father is still perfect to him yeah. and still this model of how to be king. And he says to his father, I don't know how to be king. I don't know how to do this. I, and his father says, you know, like a father who hasn't prepared his son for his own death is not a father. And, and they have this beautiful moment. And you get the sense that T'Challa is still following in his father's footsteps. And he wants and his what he really wants to become is King T'Chaka. Yeah. But then there's the second time when he has to visit the ancestors, right? And he's nearly dead and he's not covered in red sand in this beautiful uh, ceremony. He's covered with snow that's keeping him alive. Snow that um, provided by his um, 
by his tribal rivals. And this time he visits the ancestors and it's midday, right? Like he can see clearly now. There's no more dusk. Mm. There's no more soft light. And not only that, T'Chaka is surrounded by what we can infer are the previous Black Panthers. It's, it's, it's all of the ancestors. Yeah. And he now has reason to believe that his father is not the perfect king and that he actually doesn't want to follow in the footsteps of his father. Um, and that the seeds sown so many years earlier by his father are the things that are now threatening the kingdom of Wakanda and, and really threatening the world. And the haze is gone and everything is brought to light there. Um, and I just wonder how, like, as preachers, we often, like John, we do these, like, hazy uh, interpretations of Scripture. <laughs> and, we, uh. and, we, and we give this, we give the good stuff. And we look at that and we say, oh, this is amazing. And we don't often do our exegesis in full daylight. Um, and so I... I, there are times where I think I was challenged to think about this. Okay, so what does it mean to like not avoid that part of the scripture that is, I, I think, is tangential to what I want to talk about, but maybe I, it's tangential because I don't want to talk about it. Gosh, there's so much to talk about with this movie. We could do a whole conversation around the relationship of the women in the movie. Um, and and how they kind of journeyed together, which I think is is beautiful. I think you're right. You know, Nakia Okoye, and then you had Zuri in there too, um, or T'Challa's mom, um, and the support and the loyalties. I mean, that that scene where you know, come on, Okoye, we're leaving. We're leaving now, and she refuses to leave and decides to stay and be faithful to Wakanda, um, and the kind of really important back and forth. They have there, but like, what's the best way to serve your country or save your country? Um, really, a neat scene that, uh, because there's so many other powerful scenes, I think gets missed, and it hasn't been unpacked as much as it as it should be. Well, I think uh, so, Chaz. To that point, and back to your initial point about the second part of the serpent story, Matt, which is like, in what way does saving and serving? Like by di di dissecting those into two particular ideas of what your work looks like actually destroys both of them. Um, uh. I mean, similarly, like um, Hezekiah, who's trying to do all of like who's trying to do all of this change, right? He's he's trying to to clean everything up, but he has to contend with these old artifacts that people are still loyal to. And in some ways has to say like, no, no, we have to destroy that in order for us to become who we are. Um, and in some ways, I think Wakanda likewise is, is like, okay, I think we maybe have to destroy the bubble in order for us to become who we are. Like, like that, that our special hidden little um, cover has to be destroyed in order for us to become Wakanda. Otherwise we're going to lose our soul. I think that as I think about the church so often, I'm I'm wondering. Okay, wh what are we sacrificing um, by staying how we are? To your point earlier, Chaz, like 
what happens when we only center one particular experience in the church? What do we lose in that? And in what ways are we hollowing ourselves out as the church? Um, and, um, and, and slowly destroying ourselves from the inside. We don't need culture to destroy us. We don't need secularism to come and make the church irrelevant because we are slowly doing it ourselves. Um, and in some ways we need to sort of like Hezekiah and, and his reforms, like press things out, like destroy some of these serpents that we thought were the things that saved us. But really, um, in order to save us, we need to like, we need to release our loyalty to them. Yes. All right, gentlemen, there is so much more we could talk about here in this thing. I know we've, we leave a lot of topics on the floor. Uh, a, a, a lot of work the a, a lot of the things we leave undone but uh for now i think that means we've got to we've got to respect the time and wrap it up that also means unfortunately we got to say goodbye to chaz chaz thank you so much for coming back hanging out with us uh and bringing us this movie and giving us your wisdom i appreciate it no oh, much love to you guys this, this podcast is one of my favorites and uh, much love to christian century you guys are doing a fantastic job All right, y'all, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? All right, so last night I was on an airplane, and the movie that was available for me to watch was Iron Man 2. Iron Man 2 is... is it's a good is, one. I like that. Well, it's, like, consistently at the bottom of all the, of all the Marvel movie rankings. Like, it's, like, it kind of pairs up with Thor Dark World <laughs> and, like, Hulk... <laughs> Is like the bottom three that everybody agrees on. Uh, that they don't, they like? don't like? I like it. Yeah. What is it? Which one is it? What, what happens? Iron Man 2 is like, okay, so it, this is pre-Captain America or Thor. So it, it is the Marvel Universe when the Marvel Universe is really just Tony Stark and his ego. Like this is before it expands at all. And so it, it is... It, uh, follows pretty closely on the events of the first Iron Man. Tony has just publicly outed himself, but um, now everybody wants to steal his toys. Uh, the dude from The Wrestler shows up to... Oh, that's it. This is post-Wrestler. Uh, yes. Oh. Okay, so right off of the heels of that, that he starts getting roles in superhero right. movies. Got it. And, yes. uh, and, and, and Tony's kind of in a, like, a depressive, drunken stupor the whole time, <laughs> partially because the arc reactor that he built for himself is poisoning his his bloodstream uh oh yeah and so he has kind of kind of a death wish the whole time uh it's also a movie about uh, one of the critiques that people give to this movie is that it spends too much time building out the marvel universe so it spends a lot of time with uh sam jackson it spends a lot of time with phil colson it spends a lot of time uh building out the black widow character so we introduce scarlett johansson as this assistant who is working for tony in his lab uh but turns out that she's actually she's actually black widow and she is spying on tony on behalf of the avengers initiative to get a sense of how sane and stable and useful he might be and uh you know one of the other critiques that we hear in marvel land is that that um they still have not released a movie that has a a, a woman at its center uh Captain Marvel is coming sometime. 
um, and that Black Widow should have had her own movie by now, which I agree with. But I want to, I had this epiphany when I was watching Iron Man 2, which is that Iron Man 2 should have been the Black Widow movie from the beginning. Uh, hmm. and, and I get that there are like critical production reasons why they would never have done that because they were, they had to build on brand and they were making a sequel and they had to build out from what had been successful. I get all of that. Uh, but the Iron Man 2 in principle is like a movie about how this charismatic but like unstable and violent super genius gets help just in time to defeat enemies that he's created. And my version of this movie, it's uh, about it's about a, a spy. It's about a kick-ass spy, Scarlett Johansson, who who uh, survives being assigned to this unstable but charismatic and violent super genius. <laughs> and and Perfect. and so it it does a couple of really good things. One is that it gives us the chance that we have only ever had kind of in moments and glimpses to learn a little bit about the backstory of her character. We would have we would figure out how we'd have to figure out something about what brought her from you know Russian child agent to working for Shield. So we get a sense of her capacity and her growth. Um, we also see her shed that kind of respectability when the moment calls for it, when she has to go into action at the end of the movie, there's this kind of, there's this, this change, there's this growth that happens. But also we get the bonus of getting a kind of outside, maybe even a little slightly more of a clinical perspective on Tony, who is clearly insane in this movie and is suffering a major breakdown. And, and I think the, the need of the movie to make us focalize through him helps underplay how unstable and violent he actually is. Uh, there's a ton of reasons they would never have made it this way, but I, I just kind of want to imagine it into existence. Uh, yeah, just to retcon the whole universe in order to have this be the, right, that movie. Right, and I think, and, and partially because, you know, for, for nothing else, it's just a, a, the exercise of imagination that I think we have to do in scripture all the time, right? Is the, the exercise of figuring out the marginalized characters and um re retelling us retelling ourselves the story through their perspective and through their lens in such a way that we get new perspectives both on them and on the characters that have been sitting in the middle for so long so i'm there's a broader sense there of of how this affects the the lenses that we wear when we do exegesis and when we lift up um the the kind of stories that we've told so many times but at a more practical level, I just want to remake Iron Man 2. So <laughs> so I remember um, there's a, a friend who's one of the ministers at Old South Church in, um, in Boston named John Edgerton. And, um, and he wrote a sermon from the perspective of uh, David's first wife. Right. The one who gets mad at him when he's dancing. Yeah. Right. Who was Saul's daughter. Right. Um, and, uh, and I remember listening to him tell this, or preach this sermon from that perspective and thinking, this is, this is wonderful. This is so cool because like you were saying, it gives both this person voice, but it provided a different perspective on David as a human being. And, um, as someone who at times we look at a little bit like Tony Stark and say, yeah, you sing like an angel, man, but you're a little unstable. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, you've got some problems. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, so. Great. I, I, I'm with you. I think it's great. All right, what do you got, Adam? Here's what I want to talk about. So, Matt, did you ever play, like, 
tabletop role playing games, like Dungeons and Dragons, stuff but like I'm, that. I am not a nerd. No, I'm definitely a nerd, <laughs> but I never really played those. No, sorry. Um, I didn't either. I always had a an attraction, but never really had opportunity. If that makes sense. Right. Um. So I, but I'm I am uh, intrigued again in my adult life for a couple of reasons. The first is I've got a a son who just loves stories and we read a lot together we he's constantly in the midst of making up stories he loves imagination and he's just very vivid in his imagination and so i've always sort of thought like okay what are what are ways that we could tell stories together that would be fun um and it pushed me back to start thinking about role-playing games again in part because it's a collaborative form of storytelling and as I did, I started listening to this podcast called The Adventure Zone. Have you heard of it? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's very popular, but in a small segment of the world, if that makes sense, right? Um, and it's this three these three brothers and their dad who are basically just playing a role playing game. Um, and that sounds dreadfully boring, but it's not in their hands. They're pretty funny. They're charismatic. The story itself is really good, um, but more than anything else, I'm just fascinated by the ways in which the story itself is this collaborative process between four people. And there's one person who's the game master, the GM, or the DM, the dungeon master, and they've sort of got a handle on the big picture, but then they release some of that big picture to the characters themselves who then have to figure out what the story is going to look like um, in every small beat. And I, I'm just sort of fascinated by this idea of a, a collaborative way of storytelling. And I'm trying to think like, how, uh, how does this work for ministry? How do, as, as pastors and as preachers, there's so much opportunity for us to sort of tell the story but I'm trying to figure out how to better do a collaborative storytelling where we're all telling the story together and we're all moving it along together um, and no one has total control over it. And so um, on the one hand, I want to just commit Adventure Zone to you just as a, as a podcast to listen to because it makes me laugh and, I, and it's pretty easy listening. And the story itself is really fascinating. But on the other hand, as a way, as, as an inspiration for thinking more about how do you do a collaborative type of storytelling within ministry? Cool. I like it. I'm looking forward to listening to it and uh, I will channel my inner dorkiness, which will not be super difficult. It's not hard. All right. That about wraps it up for this episode. But if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to talk about how we got it wrong. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Little Dipper. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.